0: to the 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing a production of Julius Caesar put on by uh, the Groundling Theatre Company in Toronto, which is kind of an offshoot of Ontario's Stratford Festival. And to discuss this production, I have Mary Angela Rowe with me. Hello. And I'm Alex Heaney. So I feel like we need to explain about Shakespeare in Canada.
1: That's sort of broad, Alex. What <laughs> specifically were you looking for?
0: Well, I mean, we should first talk about the Shakespeare, Fe- so, not Shakespeare, the Stratford Festival, and I guess the history of the Groundling Theatre Company. You know more about the history
1: than I do. Um, but in Canada, the Stratford Festival held in Stratford, Ontario, is Canada's leading and basically sort of far and away only real Shakespeare festival, a mm-hmm. uh, theater festival. Um,
0: it's one of two in North America. It, there's yes. that. And then there's the Oregon Shakespeare festival in the U S
1: um, and Stratford's also really like, we don't, we're not like the UK in the sense that in the UK, there's always somebody doing a, pro- a production of some Shakespeare play. Right. Mm-hmm. We don't have that kind of rich Shakespeare tradition in Canada. So, while theater companies will sometimes put on the odd play here and there, the Stratford Festival and its cousin, the Shaw Festival, are basically where you go if you want to see halfway decent Shakespeare with good production values. You know,
0: mm-hmm. and the, I mean, the Stratford Festival also they run a, a theater. I don't know if it's a workshop or school where they teach people how to do Shakespeare. So the, the folks who perform at the Stratford Festival they know they know how to do their verse. So the Groundling Theater Company it was founded in 2011 by Graham Abbey, who is uh, an actor and director who um, who's been at Stratford for years and years.
1: I saw him as Henry V when I was in high school.
0: Whoa, okay, I didn't even realize he'd been there for that long, but yeah. And basically, the Groundling Theater operates during the Stratford Festival off season. So the Stratford Festival runs from April to October. And what's been happening in the last few years, anyway, is that Groundling will put on one Shakespeare production like in January ish. And it tends mm-hmm. to borrow from the folks at the Stratford Festival. So more than half of the actors are also actors at Stratford. Often the directors are also directors at Stratford. But For whatever reason, Groundling seems to be doing much more inventive and interesting productions than Stratford has in recent years. So last year, the Groundling Theatre Company, they put on this amazing production of King Lear, which Graham Abbey directed um, and starred Shawna McKenna, uh, who played Lear uh, as a woman. We have a lost episode that may or may not ever make the light of day because we had major sound issues (laughs) on it, but um, it was... I think for both you and for me, a kind of like a revelatory production, which made us completely rethink the relationships between the parents. The whole play. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was so, it was so good.
0: It was, and it was just really brilliantly directed as well as, you know, Shauna McKenna, brilliant actress.
1: It was of the recent Regan and Goneril might've had a point school of King Lear. Yeah. Which I'm here for, by the way. It was brilliant part of a modern reinterpretation of Lear that's becoming sort of increasingly common. You saw that in the Anthony Hopkins televised version of Lear as well, although not to the same extent. It was like greatest hits of Stratford's recent cast and Shauna McKenna was absolutely magnetic and marvelous and eerily recognizable as like like from the first scene you totally understood the characters and these family dynamics. Um, it was so beautifully set up.
0: This production of Julius Caesar, it's directed by Chris Abraham, who is the artistic director of the Crow's Theater, which is where this production was held. And it's it's basically a co-production between Crow's Theater and the Groundling Theater Company. And he has also directed um, Seven Seasons at the Stratford Festival and I guess is kind of best known outside of here um, for... Uh, directing the film adaptation of I, Claudia.
1: It's worth discussing for two principal reasons. Well, three. One is it's everybody is doing Julius Caesar right now. So we need to think about what this Julius Caesar is adding to the canon of Julius Caesar's. We need to talk about how this production is a, a restaging of the bridge theater production Plus,
0: Which we did a podcast episode on that you can listen to. Uh,
1: yes. Plus what it tacks on in this sort of attempt at meta theater through the play. Uh, and it's part of this trend of like trying to update Shakespeare, man. The one thing the play does do not quite well, but with, you know, reasonable success is situate Julius Caesar in a historical context that would have been familiar to most of its audience. And that is not familiar to most audiences today. Mm hmm. Um, so basically, shore up the areas where Shakespeare assumed general knowledge, and we just don't have it anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's also interesting to just thinking about it. It's it's a play that's done in in the round, and it's in a fairly big space for a fairly small audience. Like I'm not sure how many seats. Maybe like a hundred or two hundred seats in there. Mm-hmm. It's a fairly. It feels intimate. It feels very intimate, but it also feels kind of epic almost, because the stage isn't tiny. Yes. You know, the stage is like three times as big as the Donmar Warehouse stage.
1: And it's like the ceilings are incredibly high. The room echoes. It's kind of cavernous.
0: Yeah. And I think some of the ways that they use that space reminds me a bit of the production, the Philadelphia Lloyd production with Harriet Walter, which was also in the round.
1: Yeah. This is a production that owes a significant amount of its ideas to two previous UK productions and the tax on something... That I don't think either of us thought was entirely successful, but you liked less than I did. <laughs> First, I think that we should introduce, what is the play Julius Caesar? I mean, everybody knows Beware the Ides of March, Stabby. But we should provide like a rough overview, pulling in some of the background.
0: What? <laughs> That's going to be my new description of Julius Caesar. <laughs> Beware the Ides of March, Stabby. Well, no, but there's this per- there's this
1: perception that like all the good stuff happens in Act 1, Right. And then you've got this other half of the play that's about the civil war that results.
0: I think there's something to be said about it. All the good stuff happens in Act 1, especially in this production, though. I think we disagree on that, but...
1: Yeah, I actually thought it picked up in Act 2. And we also, I mean, the other reason we need to do this podcast is we need to tell everybody about the magnificence of Andre Sills.
0: Uh, yes, and, like, retroactively apologize to him I
1: think for the, On be- because we were so wrong <laughs> Coriolanus was not your fault Andre Sills we understand now um, you were not to blame for that he
0: he played Coriolanus in the Ro- Robert Lepage production that we basically shot all over it was not good no it wasn't good but having now seen Andre Sills as the amazing Casca we can definitively say it was not his fault
1: also like a very scene-stealing Casca. Like oh, he my just God. just has so much charm and charisma. You were like, yeah, 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 plotters. Tell me more about Casca. <sighs>
0: <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Uh, this, is, this was very much a production where Cassius and Casca stole every scene.
1: Which is interesting in and of itself because, and we have to rewind to talk about this a little bit. Explain right? who they are, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's also part of, we've seen a couple of Julius Caesars where Brutus is like a little... Well, he's, he's a a- overshadowed, yeah. you know? I mean, a dud might be too strong, but he's definitely
0: Yeah, I mean this one was not a dud. He was just overshadowed.
1: Yes. And I don't I don't know that the play had a coherent idea of what kind of Brutus it was going for, too.
0: Uh, which is a bit Beyond of a directing problem. Then we shall like, yeah. Julius Caesar. It's one of Shakespeare's kind of fastest moving plays. It's like it's one of the Roman plays set some number of years post Coriolanus which this production actually helps contextualize but um anyway the premise of it is Caesar has just come home from this big conquest and he's victorious and there's all kinds of party and happening to celebrate Caesar and they're talking about wanting to basically king him
1: and the significance of this which isn't really unpacked in the play's text but which this production did a fairly good job of contextualizing is Rome has historically been a republic or a sort of republic. Like, Rome has historically not been keen on kings.
0: So, we are sort of, at the beginning of the play, we're kind of backstage, and we meet this, in this production, a woman named Cassius, who is very concerned about the idea of Julius Caesar taking this kind of power. So yeah, so when when the play opens, there's... There's these celebrations of Caesar, most of which happen offstage. And we meet Cassius, who is very worried about Caesar taking, like, becoming a king. And she has decided that the best way to stop tyranny from ruling over Rome is to convince Brutus to help her and a bunch of other conspirators kill Caesar and then let Brutus take over as the new leader of the country. And Brutus is very ill-equipped to do this. He's smart and honorable, um, but has no real sense of politics. And part of what happens is his own ego kind of gets inflated and that becomes his downfall because they, they inflate his ego in order to persuade him to say yes. And then suddenly he becomes convinced of his own ideas, which were never particularly helpful in a political sense. So they all gang up and they kill Caesar. Brutus's wound is kind of more of a metaphorical one. It's not the one that kills him. Caesar's already been stabbed a billion times. Um, Shot. Oh, sorry. In this production, shot. But Brutus still shoots him. And in the aftermath, basically what happens is Brutus has decided, I'm going to give this speech and I'm going to explain to the mourning population why we decided to kill Caesar. That'll work. And Mark Antony, who's been Caesar's right-hand man, gives a speech also right after Brutus, which instead of saying being like, these are the reasons we killed the man you loved, starts talking about how much he loves Caesar and he starts to turn the tables. And suddenly chaos starts to, to reign because Mark Antony has now got the weight of the army behind him and is battling Brutus and his conspirators' uprising. Part of the premise of the play is that that power corrupts. And I think, as you like to say, new boss, same as the old boss. And so basically, you know, there's a question of how much is Caesar really as power hungry as everybody says he is, or is that just what happens when you're at the top? And then as soon as Brutus takes over, does he suddenly basically become Caesar by virtue of the fact that he has power? And then when he's overthrown, is Octavius... Octavius going to be any better so it's, it's very much about these like cycles of power and what that does to people
1: with that in mind it's sort of unsurprising although a bit on the nose that Julius Caesar has seen a revival since 2016 it feels like every festival and their mother has done a Julius Caesar in the past <laughs> four years mm-hmm. which is actually really good for people like us because we have a lot of rich material to compare it to Mm -hmm. but is a little less good for this production because it means we've seen this before. Yeah. When we walked into the theater for this production, it's in the round. It's very dark. The space is black. There's a sort of mist or fog in the air and the staging is pretty spare. It looks like a talk radio studio surrounded by like cage grills on wheels, Mm -hmm. like, sections of cage on wheels that it looked like crowd control barricades. Yep. And I looked at this and I looked at Alex and I was like, Oh, it's the Nick Heitner production from the bridge theater.
0: And you you said that like kind of in jest, you weren't actually expecting them to follow it beat for beat.
1: Well, I was, ex- it was clearly inspired by from like from the, from the outset. Mm-hmm. But like, I think both of us were surprised at the degree to which it lifted from the Nicholas Heitner production.
0: Yeah. I mean, all of the sets, at least in the first act anyway, which they they put the intermission after Mark Antony's um, funeral speech, at least in the first half, it's very much like the exact same sets. Brutus and Cassius have their first meeting at a cafe (laughs) and it's the same kind of chairs and it's in the setup and the and table. It's set up in the same kind of way. Cassius is
1: styled in a similar way as Cassius in the Nick Heitner production. Um, She's kind of like slim sort of business lady Mm -hmm. type thing. And Brutus has glasses and is writing in his little notebook in his cafe being an intellectual in the Nicholas Heitner production. Ben I played Brutus, and it was very clear that Br- that Brutus was a sort of Nicholas Kristoff, Chris Hitchens, New York Times opinion columnist, public intellectual type. Mm-hmm. Nick Heitner gives us an instant idea of Brutus's social status by have having someone want, try to take a photo of him in the street, holding up a copy of his book, you know? yeah. In this Brutus, we get a sort of similar thing. We get someone tries to take a selfie with him, but we have no idea why, and we don't really have a sense of what role brutus plays in the world at large other than he's apparently famous something that no one ever reacts to again yeah like no one else treats him no one else stops him on the street or stares at him or treats him like he's this big famous guy right
0: yeah whereas he's actually kind of in caesar's entourage like a backstage ish member of it
1: but we never see them interact no in any meaningful way which is a thing that an kind of annoys me about a lot of recent Shakespeare, recent productions of Julius Caesar that we've seen. If you expect me to believe that Brutus and Caesar had some deep bond, it would be nice to see them interact (laughs) in any way. Right. Before the murder.
0: But yeah, I mean, also when we meet Mark Antony, he's in a tracksuit. I'm trying to think what are the other things that are exactly the same as in the Nick Heitner one.
1: There is the opening wherein in the Nicholas Heitner production, it's set up like a rally almost. And it's this sort of drunken revelry celebration. And in this production, we see something very similar where two Romans are decked out in Caesar-branded gear, getting kind of plastered and clearly, you know, representing the same party atmosphere that they were trying to uh, develop at the Bridge Theatre.
0: Yeah, although I think one of the big differences is that the Bridge Theater had this whole like twenty minute section. You show up at the theater and there's a band playing, and Mark Antony's kind of hanging around, and you become part of the audience. You you and you literally become one of the groundlings for Julius Caesar, kind of almost unwittingly. Whereas you don't really get that in this. There's there is that sort of revelry, but it happens for you know, a minute instead of this whole 20-minute preamble so that as soon as Caesar shows up, you're ready to... You've already been singing along to Seven Nation Army and you're ready to scream Caesar if asked.
1: Yeah, this production kind of waffled about how much it wanted the audience to feel like they were part of the play. Yeah. There were moments when it was really effective, but I also wish they'd sort of gone farther with that, you know?
0: Yeah, I feel like there were... Well, I don't know if we... Are we getting ahead of ourselves here, but... For me, the one moment that I thought was a stroke of genius in this production was when when we're get, going to Caesar's funeral, they handed out these little sort of electric tea lights tea lights and they had the whole room darkened and you could basically everyone is now holding a candle for Caesar at his funeral and so suddenly when you hear Brutus giving his speech explaining why Caesar is dead it feels so inappropriate. Because you feel like you're there for a funeral and you're one of the mourners. And Brutus is explaining to you why it's good that this guy is dead. That was incredibly effective.
1: So having lifted as much as they did from the Nicholas Heitner production, which was A, very immersive, B, modern, C, had a Trump-like figure as Caesar, which was not the case in this one. No. Caesar was very clearly a former military leader in that enormous military greatcoat mm-hmm. and seemed like less of a demagogue. Yeah. They lift like the blocking and staging of uh, almost all of the second act,
0: mm-hmm.
1: all of those scenes in like in their little hideouts, like yeah, yeah. the blocking is lifted. Like yeah. the, what would you say that they pulled from the Harriet Walters production of the Donmar?
0: I think the big thing is the fact that because it's in the round and they they did a lot with sound so you would hear what was you would hear the three times that Caesar's offered the crown and refusing it and you hear it in the background but you are sort of circled around Brutus and so you feel like you're invested in what's happening with Brutus while this whole thing with Caesar is happening off stage and you're not part of it so it has this sort of real backroom feel to it and then that shifts when suddenly the conspirators are now center stage and now you're circling the conspirators and suddenly you become the threat to the conspirators almost
1: yeah one of the things you and i were talking about before we saw this production was how julius caesar has this sort of on stage off stage on stage off stage dynamic things that happen in private and things that happen in public things that are showmanship and things that are genuine, and this very clear divide between the two. Mm-hmm. The Nicholas Heitner production and the Donmar production, in their own ways, had a lot to say about the clarity of that divide, especially the Nick Heitner production. Yeah. What? How did you think this play expressed or thought about that?
0: I mean, one of the things that I found really challenging with this production is figuring out how much of what I was feeling was because of this production and how much of it was me sort of on autopilot going okay we're in the nick heitner production like everything mm-hmm. kind of happened as i was expecting it to and that kind of took me out of it i had a hard time really being present because i was kind of like oh, okay well now we're gonna i guess now we're about to head to brutus's home and i assume he's gonna have a desk full of books and, oh, yep, and a sitting room <laughs> and oh there it is uh, and then he's gonna stand just and... once.
1: I would like someone to have a portrait of Brutus's grandfather on the wall. You know, like it would just oh, that make would everything be good. Clear. Yeah,
0: right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and so I spent a lot of time just kind of following the motions of it. Like even Cassius, who I think this Cassius, the actress who played Moya O'Connell, she was amazing, and I think better than the actress that Nicholas Heitner had. Yes. She stole every scene she was in. But as far as the interpretation of that Cassius, it was basically the same interpretation as in the Nicholas Heitner production.
1: I'm not wholly sure that's true, actually. I think this Cassius was better than the Cassius, more rounded, more... Actually, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And one of the things I think this production did really well that I think the Nick Heitner production tried for but didn't quite hit as well as this production did was showing you the shifting balance of power in the conspiracy itself.
0: Oh, yeah, that's true.
1: Because this conspiracy is Cassius's show, right? Yeah. She's the one who makes the decision to bring Brutus in as essentially a figurehead. Yeah. But he seems to think he's the boss. Yeah. And she's willing to go along with it. And she clearly has some affection for him, or at least respect or esteem or looks up to him as a person. hmm But also, Cassius is the one who has good ideas, and Brutus does not. Yeah. There's a great moment in the immediate aftermath of Caesar's assassination where all of the conspirators are just sort of hanging out in the Senate looking like, what just happened?
0: This is in the the, the Groundling production. Yes, yeah. correct. And
1: Cassius slumps down into Caesar's chair. And it's clear that she's doing it because she's just lord right she's not trying to take on caesar's role Mm -hmm. and she kind of has this heavy knees apart elbows on knees head hanging down um almost like lanky teenage boy kind of way of sitting Mm -hmm. and mark antony comes in and mark antony is trying to finesse his way through this situation and Brutus is all about the high-flown words, like, I promise you, we have really, really good reasons why we killed your friend and mentor. We will 1,000% explain them to you. you got to trust us when you hear about all these great reasons. (laughs) And while Brutus is striding about center stage being very persuasive and earnest, Cassius just says from sort of the back of the stage in shadow without really lifting her head, Oh yeah, you, Antony, will have a say in the distribution of honors. Which is like, Cassius knows what really counts. Mm -hmm. Mark Antony wants stuff. Mm -hmm. He's not really interested in being an equal citizen of Rome.
0: No, he goes where the power is.
1: Yes. And Cassius is the one who understands that. And after Cassius says that, you can see Brutus looking over at her like, what? Part of it is like a little bit like, don't interrupt me. And part of it is, what does that have to do with anything? And it's one of those moments where you could almost see Cassius wrest control of the conspiracy back from Brutus. But she chooses not to.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: She doesn't take that step, you know?
0: Right, but then Mark Antony asks to speak at Caesar's funeral, and and Brutus is like, sure, no problem, of course you can. And, and Cassius is like,
1: no, 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 no.
0: <laughs> well, not just that, but Cassius goes, <laughs> a moment, Brutus? yes. <laughs> And in that moment, Cassius is in the sort of regal chair. Brutus is almost standing before her like a subject, and she's trying to convince him, no, don't let him speak. And Brutus is like, I don't see the problem with letting Mark Antony speak.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. If there's one thing that the Nicholas Heitner production and this production make really, really clear, it's that all of Brutus's ideas are bad. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but I think... I mean, I think the thing that the Nick Heitner one did better is it really contextualizes that because it you understand that... It's not that Brutus is stupid. It's that Brutus is not a politician. And he's used to... I think in his... In the, the Heitner one, he's even possibly like a professor. You know, he's used to speaking and having people listen to him. And that just by virtue of the fact that he's standing there speaking, people will be quiet and listen. And he thinks that as long as he has you know, good reasons for things, people people will care. And that is not how politics works.
1: Hmm. So we're kind of comparing this unfavorably to the Nicholas Heitner production. And I do want to talk about the ways in which it departs pretty sharply from both of the productions it lifted it from mm-hmm. in a minute.
0: And also, I think part of what it does is the Nick Heitner one has a st- the stage is kind of constantly moving. Things pop up from the ground and come down and... The, the groundlings, the audience is standing and gets shuffled around so that they can become the citizens of Rome, whereas this is everybody's seated in the round. So it is a different environment.
1: Yes. And in that sense, you're right. It's much more akin to the Donmar Warehouse production, which was also performed in the round and also had this sort of feeling of almost bleacher-like seating around a stage that felt like it was in a pit or in a court.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and during the funeral, what they did is is really quite wonderful. They make it very dark and they pump up the echo. They surround, they basically put the concert barriers in front of each of the four walls of where the audience is so that we're effectively watching through that fencing. And when this, when Mark Antony gives his speech, it's, you feel like you're in an arena, Uh, It's like you're at a political rally almost where he's or if not a political rally, you're at like um, a big event where he's speaking to a huge crowd and you're one of you're sort of um, maybe at a vigil, almost holding up a candle while he gives his big speech. Um, It's pretty viscerally rousing. Mm -hmm. More so than even I think the Heitner
1: one would have been.
0: Right. I think one of the things that we criticized, I mean, none of us were there and present as one of the groundlings at the Heitner production. But one of the things that I think Noemi rightly crit- criticized was that the bridge theater was kind of like, it's a radical staging because it's immersive theater. And she's like, mm. <laughs> you put some people on the ground. Naomi is so Naomi is so <laughs> jaded though. Yeah. At this point,
1: right. Like she's just so jaded. She's like, I've been working in Germany. We did all this in Germany years ago. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Right, but I think that a part of but the the point there is that I think she's right that there would there was maybe that sort of visceral like I I mean, I don't know, because I wasn't there. but certainly this one, partly because you're at the same level as the actors as opposed to looking up at them, there is this sort of participatory thing that you get in a way that you don't just feel like, okay, I'm being herded. And I'm watching it and I'm watching a play that's like basically the same except I'm being herded. Yeah, like you just you just you get so close to the actors, you know, like they're standing right there next to you. And like sometimes they deliver lines and you feel like they're talking to you because there really aren't that many people in the theater. And when they come near you, it's like just you.
1: Yes. Although, the downside of that is, if you are having trouble controlling your facial expressions, as I was at some point in the production... (laughs) Me too! "Mm, Don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact. (laughs) I'm extremely skeptical of all of these choices, and I don't want to demoralize anybody. I
0: know! It's it's not your fault. You're acting well. I'm sorry. Let's talk about those choices, shall we?
1: (laughs) Okay. So... I am less negative on them than Alex was. In part, I think they actually succeeded at doing their job, which is setting the play Julius Caesar in its appropriate historical context and giving you a better understanding of who these characters are. However, it also kind of makes the subtext text. <laughs> like, do not do that. Yeah. So like,
0: there's basically a prologue with some talk radio explaining the historical context. And there's an epilogue in which the characters come back to life to have a post-mortem on the play. And then I guess there are a few points throughout the play where characters break from the Shakespearean language to add in modern language that explains who people are.
1: And the characters speak in this sort of, they don't even try to mimic iambic pentameter. They break into this very casual, colloquial mm-hmm. modern English. Yep. Which I like, actually. Uh, it's a modern dress production. It felt vivid. Any attempt at iambic pentameter would have felt weird and stilted. Yeah. And would
0: draw attention to the fact that whoever wrote it wasn't Shakespeare. Precisely. This is the problem with Pericles. <laughs> anyway. You can read Mary Angela's review about that. Review of that on the show. It's several years row. old. <laughs> but very funny.
1: Let's talk about... So they have these, a couple of these episodes through the play, but let's talk about the last... The ending scene that they add on. Oh my god, Alex! So the, the the play Julius Caesar, not this production. The play Julius Caesar ends with everybody goes and looks at Brutus's dead body, and Mark Antony says, "Apropos of nothing, he was the noblest Roman of them all." Sidebar. In more in recent productions, I've seen no evidence of this. <laughs> yeah. So it would really help me, an audience member, if the production tried to give some meaning to that phrase. Mm -hmm. And they all carry Brutus's body off for a hero's burial in Rome. And in a couple of recent productions, we've seen a sort of a last shot of Octavian being meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Mm -hmm. As in all of this conflict has accomplished precisely nothing. In this production the groundling theater adds like a everybody gets together in the underworld and chats
0: (laughs) scene and literally rise from the dead like they were like coriolanus
1: is there and pompey is there these are not characters in this play (laughs) they're not even contemporaries of the characters in this play
0: i mean the coriolanus is also this sort of inside joke because andre sill's who plays Casca in this production, played Coriolanus at the Stratford Festival a couple years ago, which we did a podcast on.
1: We're so sorry. That production did you wrong, Andre Sills. You were so great.
0: So great. I don't understand how that was such a disservice to him. Yes. He just, like, oozes charisma. Oh, my God. Glad he fin- he got to play Casca because, wow. Um, yeah. But he, sh- he shows up and is like, Hey, I'm Coriolanus. So if you've seen... So they like,
1: yes, you are.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> and I have some thoughts.
1: <laughs> I have some thoughts on pandering and politics. And they use this, like... It's really, like, it's about seven or eight minutes, but Alex said it felt like 20. Oh,
0: my God. They
1: all use this time to, like, expound on the themes of the play at length. Mark Antony's monologue is pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Because he starts talking about Cleopatra.
1: Oh, (laughs) awkward. (laughs) But they circle back through Brutus and Pompey and Cassius talking about sort of what they regret. And Corioletus shows up and is like, hey, you really got to pander if you want to do the politics. I didn't pander and look at me. Then Brutus has this long monologue in which he basically says... People are animals. We're all animals. I'm an animal too. All of us are. How do we restrain ourselves from these visceral human emotional reactions and listen to cool reason? How do you make them do that? And he looks at Caesar and Caesar says you don't, which is sort of like that's it. That's the play. Yes. <laughs> like that's what we we did we, that's what we've been watching this whole time. Yeah,
0: like if you had done a proper job on this, you wouldn't need to explain this to us. I think the other thing too is that that we haven't mentioned is throughout a huge chunk of the second half of this play Caesar is stalking the stage like he's Hamlet senior
1: yes fortunately he's wearing a fantastic overcoat and has great posture so you know it kind of
0: works right but it does kind of lend him some kind of moral weight
1: that I, I don't know if moral weight is what I would go for there
0: really okay what would you go for no finish your thought I'm sorry I shouldn't have interrupted you Um, I I just feel like it's kind of like Caesar, there's a degree to which it's like Caesar watching them going, you thought I was the problem. I wasn't the problem. (laughs) Um,
1: it's, that wasn't really how I thought about it, but okay, that makes (laughs) sense.
0: Well, just, just the sense of him standing there judging you and like making you feel guilty about the things that you did in order to get your power. And So to me, that kind of, it kind of adds more weight to Caesar and makes it seem like Caesar was maybe an okay guy. And I'm not saying Caesar was or was not an okay guy, but it's a little bit tough to force us to keep watching Caesar and make us go, Oh, look at the bad things those conspirators did for 40 minutes and then suddenly be like, Caesar was so great. Why did we do this? Um, oh, actually, Caesar wasn't so great. Um, oops, maybe humans are the problem. Like, pick a side. And I'm not really
1: sure where the play is supposed to leave us, right? Oh, by the way, the the sportscaster thing, they sort of pulled from the much maligned production of Coriolanus that we really hated mm-hmm. the sportscaster talk radio routine that they do at the beginning to set the scene mm-hmm. was precisely how Robert Lepage staged the first scene of Coriolanus which was actually like the one really good idea he had in the play yeah which, which made was a lot itself of sense. ripping
0: off Ray Fiennes' Coriolanus I mean it's not talk radio but there is a television show where people oh yes are, that's true um it's like a news talk news and they're talking about what what just happened So Ray Fiennes and
1: Nicholas Heitner emerging as the interpreters of Shakespeare for our age. Mm -hmm. Everyone else is just basically kind of ripping them off. It just felt kind of pat to me, you know, Mm -hmm. like it felt what they were saying about the themes of the play was not incorrect. And I think that if you hadn't seen 8 million Caesars the way we had, it's possible that you would have benefited from this in the sense that it really pulls out the guts of this play. But one, yes. you shouldn't, you shouldn't have to, like the production should do the talking for you. Mm-hmm. And two, it leaves, it ends on sort of a dumb note, right? It's like, look, Fox News won. Yeah. Basically.
0: And I mean, the first Caesar, I, I, okay, I'd seen Caesar once at Stratford, which was really terrible. So I didn't really understand the play. But the first time I feel like I really saw Caesar was the, the little Lloyd film mm-hmm. starring Harriet Walter. And I understood all of that stuff from that one production. Yes,
1: and that production wasn't even as concerned as as, as this one and the Nick Heitner production are with sort of public demagoguery and the, the public-private divide, you know?
0: Right, no, it was much more about power corrupts. And
1: I- intimate relationships and how love and affection and interpersonal can make you do bad things for sort of personally good reasons.
0: Mm-hmm. And also the fact that just because you have the right ideas doesn't mean you're going to... Have a successful rule in politics. Yes. I think in that one it was very clear that Brutus was Brutus the was honorable the right. guy. Yes. And that he was sort of the conscience of the community almost. But that didn't matter because he wasn't a good politician. Yeah, so I I, I feel like if you've done a good production, that, should, that epilogue is unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Although it, it was funny. I will say that.
1: Yep. Especially Graham Abbey's bit about Mark Antony and Cleopatra. So what kind of Brutus is this, Brutus, right? Because in the previous productions that we've mentioned and the productions that this one is drawing from, who Brutus is is pretty darn clear. Mm -hmm. But I didn't feel that clarity in this production, and I wanted to hear your thoughts about it.
0: I don't really have a good answer, because to me it was all of the trappings of the Ben Whishaw one without the depth. So... We
1: saw a production of Julius Caesar at Stratford, I believe, this summer, right? It was no, this summer? No, it was 2018. Oh, God, I'm old. <laughs> Time is just passing. Um, <laughs> and there were a lot of problems with that production. But the biggest problem with that production was that I didn't really understand who the characters were and how they related to each other. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the minor problem. No, who are no, these I people? Mean, Why do I care? No, I mean
1: <laughs> that came out sounding a lot harsher than I meant it. Um, I meant that okay, there was a coherent vision for Brutus. It just wasn't a particularly compelling vision and I don't under- I didn't understand his place in the society, the Rome that they were trying to build. Okay. I didn't understand Brutus' relationship with Caesar. I didn't particularly understand Cassius. Mm-hmm. And Mark Antony in that production was played by the divine Michelle Giroux, who was also in this production. And Michelle oh, Giroux, that's who
0: she is. I was like, I she's know just I've magnetic. seen her be, be great before. Yes.
1: Like, she's just, she's just totally magnetic. And anytime yeah. she's on stage, even when she's saying, like, bit part lines, like, I am soldier number four, <laughs> reporting about the bombs or whatever. Um, she's just, like, just she's a play so good, of yeah. her and Andre Sills and... The woman who played Cassius in this production. That would be great. That's what I want.
0: Ooh. Yes. Right? Let her Ugh. be Brutus, maybe. Yeah, actually.
1: That would have been interesting. She played Mark Antony in the Stratford production. Her Mark Antony suffered from a lack of direction. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think the director understood who this Mark Antony was supposed to be.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she was good. It was not...
1: She's, I mean, she's so charismatic and her line readings are so good that you can't not love watching her on stage. She's such a performer.
0: Yeah. I think definitely one of the things that this production uh, really brought home, especially because it had some actors that we've seen before but not used well, is just how incredibly (laughs) talented the sort of Stratford crop of Shakespeare actors are. Yes. And how desperately they need a really good director because yes these folks are incredibly high caliber and they deserve to be doing really great work as opposed to sort of remounting somebody else's ideas
1: is there anything else we really want to say about this production
0: i want to talk a bit about the battle scenes because i think that was oh, good call really effective
1: yeah go ahead yeah we haven't talked about the nitty-gritty of the staging actually which was quite effective for all that we were whining and moaning about how it was very much inspired by the Nicholas Heitner production.
0: Yeah, I feel like if you hadn't seen the Nicholas Heitner production, it probably would have been a much better experience because it was very well staged. Yes. Whereas we were kind of like, okay, this is predictable. Oh, that's an interesting staging choice. But then our sort of, it was a little bit hard to engage because you knew what was coming. But I think one of the things that I really liked about what happens in the sort of battle scenes is suddenly there are people who are walking on these catwalks high up in the air that I didn't even realize were there. And you're hearing bullets firing from all over the place. And so you feel like you're in the middle of a war zone. I think also this is heightened by the fact that there were there were these kind of fluorescent lights that were fairly low hanging Mm -hmm. that were lighting the stage throughout most of the first half. So they gave the impression of being in a low-ceilinged room. That's right. And then all
1: of a sudden there's all this space above you that you sort of hadn't realized was there. Yeah. I want to highlight one thing about this production that they do take from Heitner that I wanted to talk to you about. Because I don't know that this production thought it through, but I don't know that it was totally ineffective either. Okay. So one of the interesting things in the Nicholas Heitner production... The Nicholas Heitner production had a diverse cast, and it was gender-blind casting, so a lot of the male roles were played by female actors as women, and vice versa. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Well, we didn't have any dudes playing Portia, but, you know. Mm -hmm. That would have been interesting. (laughs) I mean, it's coming, one of these days. Yeah. And one of the things that the Nick Heitner production did very well is show that the conspirators were all people who were in some way marginalized or disenfranchised mm. women, people of color, female people of color, yeah. people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, cons- this like set of marginalized people had in Nick Heitner's production turned to a white guy yeah, because he could be the public face versus the other white guy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty powerful. The fact that like Brutus is cool as, but you need a white guy.
1: Yes. And in this production, they had a similar sort of thing in that again, all of the conspirators were people who were otherwise marginalized, except there was was there one white guy
0: uh brutus was a like an old white guy uh
1: yes, you're right, and he didn't he nobody he had the disability right
0: oh yeah, you're right he he did have a disability
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he's ill, he's infirm, yeah, and so they sort of lifted this idea but didn't pull it all the way through mm-hmm and of course, because I, this... what we
0: haven't what is tacit what we haven't said is that Dion Johnstone, who plays mm-hmm. Brutus, is black. Hmm.
1: What do we think about this? Do we think that they deliberately made this choice and pulled it from Heitner, and then just tried to put a new spin on it, or do we think that this was something that they intentionally left behind?
0: I kind of think they didn't think about it. I think there's a diverse cast because they have a diverse group of actors, but I'm not sure that they really thought about. I think Stratford sort of has a history of colorblind casting, and I I don't necessarily mean that in a good way. They tend to like, okay, it's good that they're going to cast people who aren't white in roles that are quote-unquote traditionally white, but they almost never engage with what the implications of race are. Um, You're just supposed to ignore the fact that they're black, Mm -hmm. which is itself a little bit racist.
1: It's certainly a missed opportunity and not thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that the Heidner production did really well was tacitly explore that. Yeah. Pretty vividly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Does this... Especially the way that Cassius is a woman and cannot run the show because she's a woman.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cassius has a lean and hungry look.
0: Yes. <laughs> and she thinks too much. Mm-hmm. Like, you hear that said about a woman, it rings very differently than when you hear it said about a man.
1: Yes. And hammers home why Cassius, the mastermind of all this, is turning to Brutus, the kind of clueless dude. Yeah. I don't think this... I don't think this production had a clear idea of who Brutus was and why Cassius was talking to Brutus.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The production clearly wanted to create a... A deep personal bond between Cassius and Brutus. Mm-hmm. The conflict. There's a scene in Act Two between Cassius and Brutus, while they're like on the run from Mark Antony and Octavius, and they're in a they're like in a bunker and they're having this like knock down drag out fight about the fact that apparently Cassius takes bribes and apparently Brutus sent for money from Cassius and Cassius didn't give it to him and they're just they're just like having it out, and. In the Groundling production, that scene was really well done. And I'd never seen that scene well done before. It was really well. I thought it was really well done. Partly because Cassius was so amazing. Yeah. Like, I just, I felt like I understood what was going on with that person. I felt like I understood her, how this figured, how this moment figured into her character in a way that I hadn't before, even in very good productions. Yeah. Like, in the Harriet Walters, Don Warehouse production, I, the scene kind of felt thrown away to me. In the Nick Heitner production, it was like fine,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but I didn't under—I didn't feel like I got a richer understanding of the relationship between Cassius and Brutus out of that scene, until this production. Mm. But I think that's largely attributable to the fact that Cassius was great, because they're trying to create this dynamic of interpersonal closeness and even sort of hinting toward uh, a less platonic affection, which I didn't really like between Cassius and yeah. Brutus. But they don't do enough to establish that early on. Yeah. This whole dynamic only really appears to come out of nowhere in Act Two.
0: Yeah.
1: And feels tacked on.
0: Yeah. I think also, I mean, the 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 sort of not being aware of or not engaging with the marginalization of of the characters or sorry, the actors who are playing the characters I think that's maybe a very Canadian thing because we like to pretend we're not racist or sexist. And so that means that ultimately what that means is we just don't talk about it. We're not any less racist or sexist. We just act like we aren't Mm -hmm. by ignoring it. And then you have these production production choices like this that are kind of incoherent. Yes. I
1: don't know. I weirdly don't have a lot to say about this production except to say that Michelle Giroux and Andre Sills and what was her name? Moya O'Carroll?
0: Moya O'Connell. O'Connell, yeah. Okay,
1: so the three of them are fantastic and I would like to see them in everything from now on.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's worth just taking a moment to just talk about the influence of Nick Heitner and even just the fact that we now have recorded theater and how that seems to have how that seems to be influencing Canadian theatre. And I also saw some influences of this when I was in California on productions there and I guess just sort of what what that that means. Go ahead. I guess it's, it's worth sort of just talking a little bit context-wise that Nick Heitner is also the mastermind behind NT Live, which records live productions and broadcasts them around the world. And so that means that, you know, for example, his Julius Caesar, which was done after his tenure at the National Theatre, but was broadcast by NT Live, that's a production that could now be seen around the world, and you didn't have to travel to London to see it. And I think it, it's sort of a double-edged sword that on the one hand, it means people everywhere have access to amazing theater. On the other hand, those productions can suddenly have undue influence. And I think something that I noticed in my own theater-going habits, when I, more so when I was in San Francisco, was there was so much good stuff coming out of NT Live and then the the Royal Shakespeare Company started recording their productions and The Globe was recording their productions and broadcasting them that like... You could spend all your time just going and watching recorded productions. And I started seeing less local theater and more recorded productions because the recorded stuff was generally higher caliber.
1: Mm-hmm. That's
0: interesting. Which, you know, recordings are not actually, the recordings are kind of boring to watch actually.
1: Yeah, they're much less visceral. They're
0: much less visceral yeah. and and they're very much an act of curation. Translation, and yes. I don't even, I don't even think translation is fair. It's just curation. Mm-hmm. Not always carefully curated. You're never going to get all of the information that you would from being there in person when you see it on mm-hmm. screen. You're going to... Th- and you won't have... A- and often you won't even have any idea what you're missing. Yes. I Like, one of the things that I saw when I was in California is, like, I went to see this production of A Midsummer Night's Dream that was put on by Santa Cruz Shakespeare. And they, they, they put on a lot of really great productions. But this, it felt like it was... I don't even remember the specifics of this. It's probably in my review, which I I can find and and link to. Um, But there were things in it that were kind of borrowed from Julie Taymor's film of Midsummer Night's Dream, which was itself a a kind of translation of a recorded theater hybrid for film of her stage production. Mm -hmm. And then I had just seen Nick Heitner's As You Like It maybe a year before, which had The Forest was kind of made out of chairs, uh yeah it kind of worked it was weird but wow. it worked okay and then they used chairs to indicate trees in the same way so it was like it was just very clear that they had seen those productions and were kind of like just stealing ideas from that and then that year they also had this hamlet where hamlet was played by a woman but wasn't they didn't really do anything with gender it was just mm-hmm. and a lady is hamlet yeah and that and it kind of felt like they had watched the maxine P. hamlet and then oh. but the and then hadn't really thought about what else to do or add to it. Like it just really felt like the folks who had made these productions had seen the same stuff I had. It was sort of annoying that I'm not seeing something new mm-hmm. from these productions, even though I also would agree that those other things are good, you know. Is that really what we want to see local audiences getting? because on the one hand okay they get some version of this really great production but then it's also kind of watered down and maybe what you know the part of the point of theater is to have something that's alive and relevant and how relevant is a production that was done in London that we've seen recorded to people in California and it was outdoor theater also so no
1: i was going to say it's not just smaller companies that are being infected by this too yeah for one thing groundling is like theater royalty in canada right if anybody should be able to come up with an interesting and innovative production it should be them yeah and
0: which is what they did with lear last year
1: yes which was amazing and sure they capitalized on some themes that have been coming out in more recent interpretations of the play but the production itself felt fresh and new
0: right i mean even casting lear as a woman that had been done with glenda jackson who played lear at the old vic like a few years before that. So it was yes. kind of in the air. Wasn't the first time to put a woman is Lear, but what they did with it was completely radical in every other way. That, maybe that's an exaggeration, but it was like a, it was completely it was, it its was own vivid. Thing. Like yes. I felt I came out with a different
1: understanding of the play. I didn't feel like I'd seen it before. I felt like
0: you know? And it was very specific to the space that <clears> they <throat> had designed it for also.
1: But going back to what we were talking about earlier, I went to see a production of Othello this summer at the Stratford festival. Mm -hmm. And they had one interesting idea that they'd put into the play, but the rest of the play, like from the setting right down to the blocking of a whole bunch of scenes was lifted wholesale from the Nicholas Heitner production at the Royal Shakespeare company starring Rory Kinera's audio. You mean at
0: the national theater? I thought it was at the RSC. Oh well, no.
1: at the National Theatre, starring Rory Kinnear and Adrian Lester.
0: Yeah. First of all, anything
1: is going to suffer if you compare it to the portrayals of Rory Kinnear and Adrian Lester. <laughs> yes. Like, I, I'm sorry, you know. And second of all, it just felt like it felt like they were going through the motions of what Heitner's production had done without understanding why Heitner, Heitner had made those choices.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I mean, I'm agreeing. I haven't seen it, but yes.
1: Yeah. The one contribution that this Othello did make was Heitner's, well, Rory Kinnear's Iago is very much a, it's a play about class warfare and it's a play about pitting a white lower-class man about against a black man who's been accepted into upper-class circles. And that, there was the class resentment there. Mm. Whereas the Stratford production took that and added a twist of incel, rage, angry young man, which makes Iago's antipathy toward Desdemona make a lot more sense because he's got this kind of, she's beautiful, I want to fuck her, I want to kill her, she's if I can't have her, no one will sort of vibe to it. Mm -hmm. And that made a lot of sense, but I digress. The difficulty is that it seems like even our leading theater companies, the people that we look to to be most inventive, to set the standard, they're looking elsewhere instead of thinking through their own production ideas. And that's really disappointing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this is a problem. I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but I think this is a problem with Stratford more generally, is that they they somehow have this vacuum of directorial talent, which I don't understand because Graham Abbey is there. Hire him. Yes, yes. But they seem to, you know, I, I reviewed a production they did of The Importance of Being Earnest a couple of years... I think it was... No, it wasn't Earnest, sorry. It was An Ideal Husband a couple of years ago, and it was just so boring. Like it But was, An Ideal Husband is so great. How do you make An
1: Ideal Husband boring? It
0: just it had no ideas. It was like they were saying the lines. Mm-hmm. They were funny, because the lines are funny. The actors were good, but there was, like... It was like, why remount this now? They had not thought. It was as though they hadn't thought about it. They're just doing the plays to bring in the eighty-year-old white people and and take their money. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I think my patience for this has waned, partly because I've seen a lot more Shakespeare now than I had as a child when I was going Mm -hmm. to Stratford, and partly because when I was living in the Bay Area, I had access to two really great. Shakespeare companies. One was Santa Cruz Shakespeare and one was Cal Shakes and they both had really wonderful directors mm-hmm. who were doing like auteur theater and you know a lot of those directors have since gone on to do Broadway plays but they were they were doing you know and some of their ideas were wild like let's do Hamlet over a dilapidated swimming pool. Huh? I saw that and went mm. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? It worked, and it was an am- it was a terrific production. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen something that inventive at Stratford in a long time. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not even sure that I ever saw it. It's just like I, now I've seen these plays more than once, and I want something from them.
1: The Henry V starring Graham Abbey was really, really good, and is to date one of my favorite Henry V's. But that was in 2001.
0: I mean the the hen the, the Hamlet we saw with it was Ben with Jonathan Goad. Jonathan Goad
1: was really good. Uh, was
0: very good. I guess Coriolanus was inventive. It just wasn't good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well,
1: I mean, it's better to be risky and fail than to be boring and fail.
0: Yeah. But I think part if you're of...
1: you're going to fail, fail big.
0: Right, but I think part of what we're seeing is there's, in a way, having access to things like NT Live are almost compounding the Canadian inferiority complex already. Yes. Yeah. We're already like, oh, we, we're not going to do anything interesting, and... Nothing interesting happens here. Now it's like, oh, well, I saw another interesting idea and maybe everybody else didn't see it, so I'll just take it. Mm-hmm. And then I don't have to do thinking. Yeah. And this is crazy because I know there are incredibly talented Canadian directors in Canada that you could hire to do more interesting productions. Like, why is 90% of the stuff at Stratford directed by white men? There are <laughs> lots of directors who aren't that. Um yes. But I guess the the flip side of that is it is, we do get a real sense of the real influence of of folks who are as talented as Nicholas Heitner.
1: And we're not saying less recorded theater. I no, love no. recorded theater. I love it like, too.
0: I think it's it's so wonderful. I'm so glad that we have access. We have to access this. to it, and that you don't have to go to London and sit in a a small stuffy room with no water and, and watch watched the recordings on a tiny screen
1: at the archives yeah we used to do
0: yes but on the
1: other hand it's kind of interesting do you think that we're developing more diverse interpretations or do you think there's just sort of one authoritative interpretation of a play at any given time that sort of spreads around the world before it's taken over by someone else's view
0: well i'm a little worried that the the latter is happening um Mm. I don't know. I'm not, I, I'm, I think that's a bit of an exaggeration because I think there's always a lot of interpretations happening within the London theatre scene.
1: And there must be sort of non-English language stuff that we don't have appropriate access to that's developing totally differently.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I reviewed a few years back was the um, Chauvin Berlin's production of Richard III starring Lars Eidinger, which was amazing mm. and unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Mm-hmm. So it's not as though there is an exciting thing, theater happening, but it does sort of, it, it's kind of like cultural imperialism of the Shakespeare variety now. Yes. And almost creating like a monoculture of theater, which on the one hand, the good thing is that we now have access to this, but then the bad thing is it becomes, it maybe it has an undue influence. Yes. Not that having access to a production doesn't mean that you can't have your own ideas, so... I don't know. But I guess it it, it cements it in a way that, you know, when we think of Much Ado About Nothing, we think of the Kenneth Branagh Much Ado About Nothing, and that's partly because it's an amazing film, but it's also because it's a film, Mm -hmm. you know, and and so lots of people can see it and discuss it. Um, And so almost the thing that everybody has access to then becomes the... The standard. The standard. I mean, even within the National Theater, you know, this is something that we've lamented many times on this podcast, is they had recorded the Rory Kinnear Hamlet directed by Nicholas Heitner, which I thought was brilliant. And then as soon as they did this for Benedict Cumberbatch, the, the the Nicholas Heitner one just vanished into the archives, never to be seen again, because Benedict Cumberbatch was more popular. And that production was horrendous, and it's the first episode of the 21st folio where we just rip into it. Yeah.
1: Everybody involved deserved better.
0: Yeah. So, I don't know. It, it's a mixed bag. I think this is part of like a general trend that you see in theater m- more generally that you'll have a new play that premieres in on Broadway, and then in the next three years, every local theater company around the world suddenly does it. Mm-hmm. Um, like when I was visiting New Zealand a few years back, I saw this Sarah Rule play that had been in San Francisco like a year ago, but I hadn't seen it. And, you know, it had been in Toronto and it had been on. It had premiered on Broadway initially, like you know, it, like now it was all at all of the regional theater, and that's sort of how new plays travel is they premiere on in the West End or on Broadway, and then they kind of trickle down into regional theater. And now we're sort of seeing the same thing happen just with interpretations of Shakespeare. And on that note, uh, we recommend finding the Nicholas Heitner <laughs> <laughs> uh, production of Julius Caesar, which you can't buy but is out there through news. and gets re, yes <laughs> um and we'll probably come back to
1: cinemas eventually
0: oh i i really hope so because it's so good it's it's really wonderful and i also would highly recommend julius caesar that phyllida lloyd did she she recorded it a product the production and kind of turned it into a film and you can get the dvd of that um
1: It's an all-female production at the Donmar Warehouse Theater, and it's fantastic.
0: Yeah, and they also did The Tempest and Henry IV. I think they did part one and part two as a single play. I haven't seen those yet, but I'm Mm -hmm. excited to. Those are available on DVD, too. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Um, We would really appreciate it that if you enjoyed the episode that you rate and review the podcast on and the episode on iTunes or whatever podcast app you are listening to this on it really helps us to find new audiences
1: and andre Sills, moya o'connell and michelle Giroux. if any of you are listening please call us we would love to interview you
0: yes you are amazing <laughs> yes and so mary angela where can we find you
1: you can find me at Last victorian on twitter and very occasionally at seventh row
0: <laughs> but you're behind the scenes at seventh row
1: and the eminence Greaves
0: of Seventh Row. <laughs> um, and I'm Alex Heaney. You can find me on Twitter at B West bwestcineast, That's B W E S T C I N E A S T E. You can find me on Seventh Row a bit more frequently. Um, <laughs> you can follow 21st Folio on Twitter at 21st Folio. Uh, you can find us all at Seventh Row on Twitter. And um, I guess the most the big news coming out of Seventh Row right now is we're working on a book on the films of Céline Siamah um, and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. No idea mm-hmm. what the overlap is between people interested in Julius Caesar and people interested in retelling the history of female painters <laughs> and lesbian romance. But if we've got an intersection, you might be interested in that, and can find out information about that at siamabook.com. Mm-hmm. Um, uh and listen to the 7th row podcast which you and I are on all the time um talking about movies yes thanks for listening